Amen. You may be seated. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus. What does Paul mean by saying this? Have this mind among you? Think of it this way. If a friend were to say something provocative or puzzling, we might say to our friend, what do you have in mind? And so it's in this sense that Paul uses this word, mind. He's charging them to value what Christ valued. Like our Lord, we must have clarity of purpose. We must know who we are and what we are to do and how we are to do it. And we see this in Christ's triumphant entry. On this Palm Sunday, we see how Christ manifested His glorious mind, His glorious way. From His triumphal entry in Matthew to fulfilling that suffering servant predicted by Isaiah, to uttering those familiar words from Psalm 22, to being put on trial, crucified, and killed as described in Matthew's Passion account, and to being shown by the Apostle Paul through the power of the Holy Spirit that Christ's humiliation led to His exaltation. We begin this Holy Week with hearing of the way of Christ, the mind of Christ. We've been given a snapshot of what lies ahead, of the strange holiness, the strange glory of God that has come upon us. We began our service of worship this morning outside the church. There we heard of Christ's final triumphant entry into Jerusalem in Matthew chapter 21. And so now I invite you to return with me to this gospel passage. Let us discover the meaning behind this glorious occasion. Let us learn the lessons for which our Lord gloriously reveals. But first, let us pray. Almighty God, we come to you with Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit and we boldly pray that you will awaken our hearts and our minds. May we see you and savor you. Warm our hearts strangely, as Wesley put it, strangely warm our hearts to the power of the Holy Spirit today. That we might have the courage to walk boldly as your humble servants. And help me, O Lord, to speak clearly, to speak truthfully, and to do so worshipfully. Amen. And so here in Matthew chapter 21, we see how Christ returns to Jerusalem for the last time before he is to be crucified. And how does he return? He returns as a victorious conqueror. We're told in verse 9 that the crowds went before him and followed him, issuing words and images of praise, salvation, and submission. This is a triumphal procession. It's a prophetic celebration of Christ's triumphant reign. 
Typically, it's after the battle that one is declared triumphant. But here Christ is praised and acknowledged as the conqueror before he would ever conquer death. In verse 10, we are told that when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up. This scene is unlike anything that we have witnessed in the life of Christ. In the past, he operated quietly and discreetly. He withdrew from the crowd and told those for whom he healed not to say anything to anyone. But here Christ is making a public entrance. A public entrance that the whole city was to be affected by his arrival. Now there's no reason to interpret this as an exaggeration. Scholars suggest that the city of this size all could have been affected. But there's also another point here. This is a divinely ordained event for the revelation and the celebration of the prophesied king who would conquer. So what's the meaning behind this triumphal entry into Jerusalem? What are the lessons to be learned? First, it is to show us who Jesus is. We learn of how the Lord has perfect knowledge. He knew that his earthly ministry was coming to an end. He knew that he must finish the work that he came to accomplish, that he must suffer and die for our sins upon the cross. He had accomplished all that the Father had intended, and so he sets out to complete the Father's will. No longer would he display himself quietly and discreetly, but loudly and publicly. Bishop Ryle rightly states that if the Lamb of God is to be slain, then it must not be done privately or silently. No, every eye must be fixed upon him. And this is why Christ had been teaching and performing miracles. He was attracting them to himself. So that the crowning act of his life was to be done with as much attention as possible. This is why everyone in the city had been stirred up. This is why there is so much excitement in the air. It's because Christ's glory lied just up ahead. See how Christ shows his omniscience? You see how he shows his perfect knowledge? Look at verses 1 to 4. We read of how Christ sent two disciples into the village where they would find a tied-up donkey and her colt. We read of how he gives them words to say and he gives them favor that is necessary for immediately procuring this donkey and this colt. He knew that the donkey was there. He knew what they, would, what they should say. And he knew that they would procure what he wanted. Here we are reminded that nothing is hid from Christ. As the Collect of Purity reads, for which we frequently pray, all hearts are open, all desires known, and from you no secrets are hid. There is great wisdom in remembering the perfect knowledge of Christ. It's good for us to remember this. It's good for us to reflect upon this. If we wish to perfectly love Him and worthily magnify His holy name, then we must know who He is. He possesses perfect knowledge, omniscience. 
Our knowledge of Him will give us restraint and sanctifying power. As many of you know, I've served as a Navy chaplain for the past 14 years, and one thing I can tell you is that when sailors and Marines know that their commanding officer is present, their language, demeanor, and behavior changes. So let us speak and act in such a way that we be not ashamed for Christ to hear and to see us. Let us live and move and have our being in Him. Let us be like those blessed two disciples who faithfully prepared the way of the Lord by hearing and obeying their commander's intent. The second reason for Christ's triumphant entry is to show what Christ would do. What is it that He would do? We learn how Christ literally fulfills the law and the prophets. That's what He would do. We frequently hear the summary of the law at the beginning of our Sunday worship services. We are told that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and that we are to love our neighbor as ourself. And that on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. These great commandments for which Christ utters hinges on the law and the prophets for which he fulfills. He fulfills the law and the prophets. He fulfills all of them, not part of them, not some of them, but all of them. And this is why Matthew shows that Jesus' public entry is a literal fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy in Zechariah 9, verse 9. Behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey, a colt, the full of a beast of burden. Zechariah had prophesied of the coming king of Zion. He described it as if he had experienced it the day before. But he predicts it 550 years before it would ever occur. Israel would grow weary, but Christ would wait patiently. Christ would come at the appointed time. He would accomplish all that he was meant to accomplish. Christ knew what was waiting for him in Jerusalem. And this is why he did not become alert or distracted by the adulation of the crowd. No, he was not only fulfilling Zechariah's prophecy, but Isaiah's prophecy too. Where he says, say to the daughter of Zion, surely your salvation is coming. That's what Christ is saying as he rides on this donkey. This is why he came not in pomp, but in poverty, in humility. He came not on a horse as a warrior, but on a donkey, as a humble servant who would suffer for the sins of the world. You see, there is a lesson to be learned here. As we look back at Christ's last entrance into Jerusalem, may we look forward to his return. Yes, let us expect and anticipate Christ's return by remembering his first coming. Just as his first coming fulfilled prophecies to fulfill the law, his second coming will fulfill his promise to return for his bride. Just as he came literally as a person, he will come literally as a person again. 
first time he came in humiliation to suffer. But the second time he will come in glory to reign. The third reason for Christ's triumphant entry is to show his inherent and immeasurable value. We learn of how nothing and no one can add any value to Christ. And we learn how worthless we are without him. We're reminded that despite the crowd's demonstration of praise, no one defended him at his death, did they? Not one of them in all of Jerusalem. In verse 8, we are told that most of the crowd spread their cloaks and branches from trees on the road. These acts were undoubtedly acts that demonstrated submission. Like in 2 Kings chapter 9, when Elisha sent the son of the prophet to anoint Jehu. In verse 13, we are told that the servants of Jehu's master went in haste and took garments and put them under him on the bare steps. And they blew the trumpet and they proclaimed, Jehu is king. They submitted to the anointed one. And as this crowd lay down palm branches, undoubtedly these were acts of submission. But you know what they didn't do? They didn't declare him as king. No, his kingdom would need much more than feeble symbols of submission. His enthronement would require much more than fickle affirmation. Christ's exaltation would come only after his humiliation. His enthronement as king would come by being raised upon the cross for the sins of the world. Then he would be declared king, not by man, but by his own divine authority. Then the holy veil would be torn so that humankind might be his humble subjects, servants, citizens. Here we see a glimpse of Christ's majesty, don't we? But we also see the revelation of our depravity. You see, it's in the face of Christ's glorious arrival that we see the humbling portrait of how fickle and flawed we are as humankind. Just look at verse 9. This is a familiar verse. We say it each week in the Eucharistic liturgy. And we say it because we are praising the Lord for what He has accomplished upon the cross. But this is not how they say it. Sure, they say, Hosanna to the Son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. But only a few days later, the crowd shouted, let him be crucified. You see, by shouting these words of praise, they actually confirmed their guilt. They saw him as their Savior, but did not receive him as their Lord. Why else would they cry Hosanna, a word that literally means save now? They acknowledged that he was the Christ who was bringing salvation, but they pridefully thought that it was a salvation from the Romans, not from their sin. They had hubris, not humility. There's nothing more dangerous than half-truths. You can always trace them back to pride. 
we are to cry out, save us, then we must see that we need saved not only from physical impositions, but spiritual ones too. When Christ returns, we would be wise to not greet him with prideful knowledge. No, let us greet him as he greets us. Let us greet him with humility. Let us trust that he has canceled our debt, that he has freed us from and freed us too. Just as he came not struggling, but willing to suffer and to die, so may we enter his loving arms, not kicking and screaming like a child, throwing a temper tantrum, but as one who is struck with his inherent and measurable love for which we have in Christ Jesus. How did they confirm their guilt? They saw him as the messianic king but they did not humbly serve him. They shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. They knew that the Messiah was to come from the line of David, Israel's greatest king. But they were quickly disappointed by the humiliation of his service. They saw him as the one who came with the authority of God. They cried, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They quoted Psalm 118, a psalm that is regularly sung at Passover. But they did not grasp the profound meaning that this was the Lamb of God that was to be slain for their sin. They declared that Jesus had been sent from God, that he came with divine authority. But when his authority did not meet their approval, their praise and their support was silenced. When Christ returns, may we be found as his humble servants and citizens. How did they confirm their guilt? They saw him simply as the prophet of Galilee. The prophet from Galilee. Not as their Lord, not as the Christ, not as the Son of God who is coming into the world. And so we end our text with sadness. You see, when people ask the crowd, who is this in verse 10? The crowd declared in verse 11 that this, that Christ was the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now compare this with Martha's declaration from last week's reading in John chapter 11, verse 27. Martha said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming in the world. Jesus was a prophet indeed, but he was much more than a prophet. We may give him a wonderful welcome. We may celebrate his arrival. But if we do it for the wrong reasons, then it confirms only our guilt and condemnation, not our salvation. If we do not know him, his immeasurable value, then we will not be known by him. And so I ask, are we welcoming Jesus for the wrong reasons? Have we gained a glimpse of his glory, his immeasurable value, Do we see him for who he is and what he has accomplished and what he will accomplish?
Do we have faith in Him? Do we have the mind of Christ? Do we have the way of Christ? Are we humbling ourselves like the suffering servant for which we serve? Do we know that He is exceedingly valuable? Like Martha, we must be able to say, I believe. I believe that you are the Lord, the God, the Christ, and that you are coming for me. Not because he fits our agenda, but because of who he is. He is the news that is good for us. And so on this Palm Sunday, may we have the mind of Christ. May we value what he values. May we walk in this humble way. Yes, on this first day of the Holy Week, may we see Him for who He is. He is the eternal King who freely redeems us so that we might reign with Him. Amen.